Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A state that's home to one of the nation's only high school runners to make this year's Olympic trials. Last week, Providence's Sophia Gurriaran traveled to Eugene, Oregon to race against some of the fastest women in the country. At age 16, Gurriaran is a rising sophomore at Moses Brown. And while she won't make Team USA this year, she did come in 19th out of 42 overall in the women's 800 meters. It was a gutsy performance, and she broke the 1976 sophomore class record held by track legend Mary Decker with a time of two minutes and 2.26 seconds. Her future is bright. This week, I'm joined by Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Nerona. His office deals with big topic concerns like gun violence, hate crimes, and investigations into police misconduct. I talk with Nerona about growing trends in violent crime, the argument for getting body cameras on all Rhode Island police officers, and what the state needs to do better to address crimes based on bigotry and bias. We'll be back with Attorney General Peter Nerona after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Peter F. Nerona has been Rhode Island's Attorney General since January 2019. He served as the U.S. Attorney for Rhode Island from 2009 to 2017. And before that, he worked as a federal prosecutor and as a state prosecutor. Attorney General Nerona, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ed. Good to be here. Last week, an 18-year-old was shot in the arm by a Pawtucket police officer, Daniel Dolan, after the off-duty officer followed the teen and his two passengers into the parking lot of Wicked Good Pizza in West Greenwich. 
A lawyer for the three teens has called for your office to release your investigation into the incident. When will you be releasing your findings? As soon as they're done. You know, I think we're moving really quickly here. And, and I met with the investigative team personally on Friday. I've been in regular contact with the state police, the West Greenwich Police, to emphasize, and they understand how important it is to move quickly, but we also have to move, we have to be thorough in what we're doing so that when we do share with the public our conclusions that there aren't unanswered questions. I don't want to sort of put information out in pieces and not be able to answer all the questions. So we're moving really fast. We understand the need to move quickly. Um, and so when it's done, which I don't think will be too far down the road, we'll be in a position to share what our conclusions are uh, with the public. I mean, it seems like the main question is, is the officer given any explanation for why he used this weapon? Well, look, you know, without getting into the details, that's obviously a question that we're asking. You know, we're, you know we're, we want to go back and understand how this situation began, how it unfolded, what the motivations were, what happened, uh, you know, at the critical critical time, of, you know, meaning the discharge of the firearm. Uh, there, is a, there is surveillance video that everyone or most people have seen, but that doesn't capture that particular moment. So we want to make sure that we have all of our facts. That's true in every single, every single felony case that we bring. And so obviously we're investigating this case. I can't speak now as to where it will end up. But just remember, for your listeners, every felony case that gets brought to my office for charging takes a minimum of four to six weeks. When I took office, it was taking up to 18 months. We're, no, we're not going to take anywhere near that amount of time. We're talking days, uh, not even really weeks, uh, before I think we'll be ready to share something. But there is a process we go through. We want to get it right. We want to be careful. We want to be responsible so that when we re announce what we've done, um, that the public will hopefully have confidence in it. And the lawyer for the teen spoke about it uh, this week, saying it was a deadly and unwarranted attack. Do you, do, do you have evidence of that? Well, look, again, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about our conclusions until we have done all the things we need to do to make sure that what we present is complete. We've always worked, you know, in my career, always worked closely with counsel for people um, in that situation to make sure they have the information to do what they need to do on behalf of the family. That's not going to be an issue here. We've had contact uh, with Mr. Howe already. Um, certainly uh, the people he's represented as, as witnesses he's to the event. The yeah, teens, he's a lawyer right? for the teens. They spoke to the teens directly last week. The investigative team did. So, you know, that's not... Look, it's not an unusual situation for, for them to ask for information to, to um, take whatever action they may, they may want to take civilly. But, of course, then there's the criminal case, which if there is one, they'll have an interest in as well. So uh, we've got a job to do as, as criminal investigators. We're going to do that. And, of course, you know, we'll be cooperative with him um, as we would with anybody who is in that situation uh, to the extent information is needed. And we can get it to them at the appropriate time. We'll do that. That shooting uh, is one in a stretch of shootings that Rhode Island's seen in recent months. You know, just last week, in addition to the shooting by that officer, there was a drive-by shooting in North Providence. A Brockton man died after being found with a gunshot wound in Pawtucket. Um, what do you attribute this spate of violence to, and what's the main thing we can do about it? Yeah, look, I, I think there's—it's um, really hard, I think, to try to— draw trend lines from information when you're that close to it. You know, I'd really want to take a step back and kind of look at where we've been over the last, you know, four or five years. I've been a gun prosecutor for a long time. And when I first became an assistant U.S. attorney, my job was to, to prosecute firearms cases with ATF. So the problem of gun violence, Ed, is not a new one. Um, it's not a new one. Um, unfortunately, we've had this situation in our urban core for, for as long as I've been a prosecutor, and that goes back to the mid-90s, and particularly when I became an AUSA in the early 2000s, that we've had this problem of gun violence. I don't know that there is one main way to address it, but two things you know, come to mind. On the, on the enforcement side, I really do believe that there are individuals who drive violence. 
Um, and most uh, most police departments in our urban core and the state police and, and our federal partners can identify who those people are. And we have we did this work when I was U.S. attorney and we're doing it now. So you identify who is driving your violent crime. Not only are they shooting others, but I mean people who are shooters. You identify who those people are and you build cases against them. And I'm convinced we can do that if we do that in the right way. We've done it in the past. We're working on it now. Um, you know, I, th- I think, though, there is a broader question of, for young people in particular in our urban core, what's the short-term and long-term plan? And whether, it, and whether the absence of one leads to violence or leads to other criminal activity or just, just leads to non-productivity, that, that's an underlying problem that we have to confront. Now, that's not to say people don't bear personal responsibility for their conduct. Of course they do. But in a sense, if, if we are not providing young people with the kind of education that enables them to have a life plan, whatever that plan is, and I'm convinced many people on our urban core don't have that opportunity, then ultimately we're setting them up for failure. And from a broader perspective, all of us are failure because that, that cycle of violence tends to replicate and sometimes through generations. Last week, House Speaker Joe Shikarchi was on the podcast, and when I asked about gun bills, he said he's not looking to pass just what he called popular proposals. He was looking to pass legislation that could make a difference. So what would you tell him? What are two or three pieces of gun legislation that would make a difference in Rhode Island? Yeah, look, we, we sponsored a package of bills. And I think all six of them could make a difference. I think, you know, if you're if you're talking, if you're asking me which ones I think would make the most significant impact, certainly straw purchasing, which I'm glad to hear there'll be a vote on. That, that's a big one. What a straw purchase is for your listeners is someone who's buying guns for people who can't buy them because they're prohibited by law from buying them. And the reason they're prohibited by law is because they present a danger. So it's pretty obvious. If I'm buying a gun for somebody who can't buy one legally, that probably means I'm buying it for someone who's going to use it to do something which is going to impact public safety in a negative way. So the law there is not clear right now. We need to clarify it and make it stronger. That's an important one. Critically important. I think also making our schools safer by not allowing guns on school grounds, even if you have a concealed carry permit, it's important. I, I just think that teachers and children, I think, are safer. I think that's an important one. I think I think the magazine, I think the high capacity magazine bill is important too. I, I don't think it's, from what I understand, its prospects are, are at the moment. Um, are not are not great, um, but I think that's important for this reason. We are seeing on the streets of Providence routinely, uh, not not episodically, but routinely, high capacity magazines that have the potential to put out twenty, thirty, in some instances, forty rounds in a single magazine. Why is that important? Because people who are shooting people in Providence are are putting out a tremendous number of rounds, you know, twenty, twenty two, twenty five rounds, and they're coming out very, very quickly. Now, some would say, look, you know, the time to take to change a magazine is a short period of time. So, what difference does it make? And my answer to that is this whether it buys you one or two or three seconds. In that one or two or three seconds, somebody can get out of the way. A police officer may, may be able to address the threat, but but we're seeing it. You know, I've asked the office now to track every single every single high-capacity magazine case. You know, we haven't been tracking it because it's not unlawful. We need to track it. We, we need to be able to make the case to the public why the availability of those high-capacity magazines, not only is it out there, but it's also very dangerous. Cries to defund police departments increased following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. There were rallies and protests across the state, including here in Providence. But as my colleague Brian Amaral reported more than a year later, no police department in the state has significantly decreased their budget. And many departments actually are looking at funding increases. Do you think there's merit to the idea of defunding police forces? Do you think there 
other reforms are preferable? And what would you say to Rhode Islanders who feel that their demands have gone unanswered? Yeah, look, you know, with respect to individual police uh, budgets, obviously that's not something that I look at closely or I really have anything um, anything to do with. I will say this. I mean, I think I think certainly doing a a close examination of policing, how we do it, how we train, what equipment we carry, and by that I'm talking about body cams, is really important. So to the extent that defunding the police would mean um, no money for body cams, I think that would be a mistake, for example. I think body cams are really going to move the ball forward in terms of public confidence as to what happened. You know, you, you, you asked me about the West Greenwich thing at the top of our conversation. You know, um, we don't have body cams in that, in, that, in that instance, right? We don't even have camera coverage that covers the entire incident. If we had it, it would make everyone's life easier and there's more confidence in the result. Well, he was off duty, but you're saying like even the West Greenwich Police Department doesn't have body cameras now? Yeah, no, only yeah. Providence and Newport have it. Right. Look, he probably wouldn't have had it on anyway because he's right. off duty. But my point is, when you have camera footage, like in every instance, everyone wants to know what happened, how it happened, why it happened, right? When you've got camera footage, it helps. Now, you're not going to have it all the time because it's not going to help in an off-duty situation. I just, I point to it as an example of if you had camera fo- if you had camera coverage of everything that happened, it makes making sure you fully understand what happened so much easier. So I think that's a huge step forward. Look, I think we need to invest in, in training more police officers, but I also don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think, generally speaking, we have not invested in places uh, that could make law enforcement and criminal justice better. Okay, let's talk about hate crimes. Uh, According to the Anti-Defamation League, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Vermont have what they call comprehensive hate crime laws that cover race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability. Rhode Island has the 1998 Hate Crime Sentencing Act offering stiffer, allowing stiffer sentences, but not what they would consider a comprehensive hate crime statute. Do you feel that the Rhode Island law falls short in this area? I do, and that's why I've tried to fix it. There's no doubt in my mind the law uh, falls short. It doesn't, it doesn't cover certain classes of of uh, folks that are protected by other statutes in other states. As I look at the law, it's clear to me, but from some of the cases we brought, it doesn't appear to be clear to the court, so I want to clarify those things. My hope is that eventually we'll get it totally over the, over the hill, but in the meantime, I'm looking at these cases through the lens of people who are actually victimized because of what they look like, because of who they are, um, because of what they believe. And when I believe that that was the motivation for why they were targeted, and the victims getting their input want me to proceed in that way, then I'm going to proceed in that way. Last summer, there was an ugly incident at a local restaurant in Narragansett. It was a racist attack in which a white woman told a black family to, quote, go back where they came from. And earlier this month, a judge called the woman's actions vile and disgusting, but said he he lacked the authority to apply the state's hate crime enhancement to this case. Do you agree with the judge's description in this case? And do you think this case suggests the flaws we've talked about in the state law? Well, look, you know, first of all, I respect Judge Carrillo very much. He was a colleague of mine in my first run through the AG's office. So I've known him a long time. I have a lot of respect for him. You know, the way he reads the sentencing enhancement uh, is, I just don't agree with it. The statute says any crime charged by complaint information or indictment, which is motivated by by race, et cetera, is subject to the enhancement. I view disorderly conduct as a crime. It's charged by complaint and should be covered by that statute. The judge concluded that that's a petty misdemeanor, and so therefore it's not included within the definition of crime. I mean, look, I think, you know, reasonable minds can differ. Now, that case is going to Superior Court because the defendant is appealing her conviction for disorderly conduct. So we'll have an opportunity to potentially litigate that again. I mean, when I look at the statute, though, I want the statute to be clear. I either want the statute to include uh, petty misdemeanors or not. 
In that case, Judge Carrillo said he didn't know why the state uh, failed to charge the woman with assault. He said he, uh, she had invaded the space of a 14-year-old girl, yelled in her face, and that would have made the teen wonder uh, what the woman would have done next. So why didn't your office charge her with assault? Was that a mistake? No, I mean, it's pretty clear it's not an assault. Again, with respect to Judge uh, Carrillo, um, you know, I'm not sure what he was thinking there, but but it's rare, and I've been prosecuting a case for a long time, that mere words without, without assaultive conduct is likely to result in a conviction. I think everyone recognizes that what this was was fighting words, recognized by the Supreme Court as actionable as a disorderly conduct, and that was the appropriate charge. We try to charge what's appropriate, trying to overcharge, not trying to undercharge. That was not the first time your office had trouble applying the Hate Crime Sentencing Act. In February, a Barrington man was found guilty of disorderly conduct and assault for yelling racial slurs in a dispute with his Muslim neighbors. But the judge refused to apply the hate crime enhancement to his sentence. What was the issue there? Does it reflect this weakness we're talking about in the law? Yeah, look, I think that's a, that was a mixed motive case. I think there was a, you know, again, that case is on appeal in Superior Court because the defendant has appealed it. Was it about, allegedly, was it about a boundary dispute? Was it about race? Was it about both? The way the judge interpreted that law, I believe, was that if it involved both, then the hate crime couldn't apply. We view it differently. We view it as long as part of the motivation was driven by hate, then the enhancement applies. So again, we're trying to clarify that. I think we're right on that issue, but I understand that reasonable minds can differ, and let's just make it clear so we'll know going forward. I think one thing that's important is, is this sentencing enhancement, although the legislature passed it a number of years ago, really hasn't been used. Um, and we decided to use it because we, we thought the principle was important to put yourselves in the shoes of a family that allegedly can't have a meal as a family of four simply because they're targeted because of the color of their skin was a principle that we needed to vindicate, meaning that that conduct is just not tolerable. And that's different from somebody just telling somebody, hey, get out of here. We don't want you around here. That's different. That's different. I mean, again, this is a case where it's still pending and the allegations are just allegations because there'll be a trial again in the Superior Court. But as, but as alleged, there's a family of four, and two, including two girls, that are being confronted about the color of their skin when all they're trying to do, which is what families of four do all the time, which is get a meal at a popular restaurant. And I think that's an important principle for us as the people's lawyer on behalf of the people of the state of Rhode Island uh, to bring forward and try to vindicate. Attorney General Narona, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe Rhode Island. After first refusing to fund the iconic but struggling Waterfire Festival, the City of Providence has changed its tune. The city will match the state's $300,000 contribution to keep the iconic art festival afloat this summer. My colleague Alexa Gagas has the latest. You can check out my piece on the Roger Williams University School of Law, which plans to become one of the only law schools in the country to require students to take a class on race and the law. The decision comes amid a national debate over race-related curriculum, and as some Republican lawmakers seek to restrict the teaching of critical race theory in schools altogether. And finally, read an essay from Rhode Island Poet Laureate Tina Kane, exploring how poetry can be used as a tool to foster strong, resilient kids. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. 
Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Ned Porter, and our music is by APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to. We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. I'm out next week, so I'll leave you in the trusted hands of my colleague, Amanda Milkovitz. Two words for you, Shark Week. Talk to you later. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.